Amen. If you will, once again, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. We'll begin reading in chapter 4 in verse 1 and read through uh, verse 22. Again, this book of Acts, uh, a book that uh, describes, uh, records, narrates for us uh, God's activity in the world and in the church uh, through the uh, activities, the proclamation of his apostles uh, as empowered, uh, invigorated, and applied through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. And so as we come to chapter 4, uh, please remember that it really stands in continuity to chapter 3. It's probably a place, if I were editing uh, the Bible now, uh, the chapter and verses are, are not really part of what we would call the inspired text of Scripture. Those uh, have been largely helpful things that have been added to our translations. And so uh, chapter 4 continues a story uh, that began uh, in chapter 3. And it's in that story that we see uh, the beginning of what will amount to uh, the persecution of this early church. Now, to be sure, it's not the first time uh, in the course of history that the people of God have been persecuted. But we find that the, the church is a unique entity and it is about to undergo persecution. As I reflected this week, I was uh, reminded of uh, a series of books that Sir Winston Churchill wrote uh, at the end of World War II, and the first volume of a six-volume set was entitled The Gathering Storm, in which he looked back and he reflected uh, upon all of the realities of which he was a participant uh, that led to the atrocities of what we call World War II. That is, he was saying that we saw these things coming as one would stand and watch uh, the clouds roll in knowing what was to follow would be a storm. And so uh, for us, as we read the narrative or as Luke wrote the narrative, he is fully aware because he's writing after the events that the storm is about to break upon the church, that difficulties are going to come, that, that persecution will break out. It indeed, and sometimes becomes a, quite a, a dark hour for the church. And I would suggest to you, as much as we have tried in our introduction to this book, to uh, remind and instruct that, that we have history. It tells us what happens. It not, doesn't necessarily prescribe to us uh, how we should act, what should be the normative behaviors uh, for the church. There is some of that, but again, not everything is that which should be continued. But I think in one way that it is instructive is that it informs us that the church has always existed under the specter, under the awareness that a storm is approaching. That many times that the, the, the thunder and the lightning and the downpours and the hail and every other thing that, that is associated with these natural phenomena has fallen and fallen robustly upon the church and brought great 
difficulty upon the church. But make no mistake about it. In those dark hours, the gospel shines most brilliantly. That the gospel always demonstrates that it is ultimately powerful, that, that God is able to save and that He will preserve His people. The, the church will endure and the church will be triumphant because that indeed is God's plan. And we will triumph over the storms just as Luke illustrates for us that the early church, despite the afflictions, despite the obstacles, they flourished. And the gospel advanced. And so let's look at this this morning as we think about uh, this gathering storm and as I try to uh, say some things that are applicable. Be reminded and be thoughtful that indeed too, we should be, if we are alert, see storm clouds approaching the church. Let's read. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem uh, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them they had nothing to say in opposition but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this, in this name. 
And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Uh, It is your word. It is always relevant. It is always true. It is always powerful. And Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful in communicating your word to these, your people, that you would be faithful to, through the power of your Holy Spirit, apply this truth to our lives that we may become more like our Savior. Lord, that those who are yours indeed would be transformed. They would be changed. Lord, they would be convicted of sin. They would uh, become empowered to serve you better. For those who do not know you, we pray that you would so work that you would cause them to believe your gospel. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To remind you, let's go back just for a moment into chapter 3, the occasion of the healing of a man who had been lame uh, from birth. This prompts uh, a reaction uh, from the crowd and prompts uh, or gives to Peter and John the opportunity to explain that which they are seeing, namely the miracle of one born lame who is now able uh, to walk. And so Peter and John take this opportunity to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in speaking of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they also indict those who are listening for their rejection of this one who had healed, namely uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes so far as to remind them, even though the pagan, Gentile, unmerciful uh, leader, ruler, Pilate determined that Jesus should have been released. You demanded that he be crucified. You killed his term here, the author of life. And now this one that you have killed, God has raised from the dead. You acted in ignorance. Now, no matter how you slice it, when you indict someone for their ignorance, they are never going to be happy about it. And so again, Peter indicts them for their willful ignorance of the truth. And he calls upon them, and this is always, must be intrinsic to the gospel, the call to repentance, the call to believe this gospel, to turn from sin and believe that God has accomplished in His Son Jesus Christ all that is necessary for your salvation. He goes on. He, he can't stop. He He actually keeps piling on that that this Jesus is the one that has been anticipated. This Jesus is the one who has been prophesied. He is the one that we have been expected and goes on to say that indeed it is those who will believe in this Jesus Christ that are heirs of the promise, that that are sons of the covenant, participants of this covenant. What is he saying? 
You think you're the covenant people of God. But that time is changing. And only those that shall know the grace of God, the only ones who shall know the grace of God, are those who shall repent and believe this gospel of a crucified and resurrected Lord. And so we are here to preach that gospel and call upon men in all places, at all times, to turn from their wickedness. And so as he proclaims that, as we said last week, the gospel, the gospel is always provocative. It is always provoking. It will either provoke repentance or it will provoke rebellion. And we see both explained in these texts here for that they were those who heard and they repented and they believed. And there were those that were entrenched and inflamed in their rebellion against God, expressing that rebellion against God in the persecution of those who proclaimed this truth. And so one of the things that you can kind of keep in mind as we go, through, go forward in the book of Acts, the church is going to be afflicted. The people of God, whether old covenant people of Israel or the church of the new covenant age, they have always been afflicted. They have always faced the challenges, the realities of a fallen world. And you can categorize that affliction in one of two ways. It comes from the natural realities of a fallen world. The Apostle Paul got sick. He knew those that got sick and died. The Apostle Paul was shipwrecked. He, he suffered many physical maladies. Some of them brought about him by moral sin, people choosing to rebel against God. But again, the people of God will suffer the natural consequences of living in a fallen world that will afflict them, that will be, bring pain, and at times even hinder their ability to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They will also face moral evil. That is those that intentionally, that choose to live in rebellion against God. And when they choose to, to live in rebellion against God, they will express their rebellion against those who stand firm to proclaim the gospel, to indict wickedness, and to call for repentance. That day has always been a reality for the church of the living God. And I believe, that increasingly, we're going to be living in a culture that is going to be hostile to hearing the truth from the people of God. So as we see these storms, and they surely are approaching, we need to be prepared to give that ready defense. Because we of all people have what? We have the truth, and in that truth, we have hope. We have certainty. And I would suggest to you, we have the victory. And it has been assured, it has been secured by our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all, beginning in verses 1 and 2 there in chapter 4. The annoyed religious leaders, the, the Sadducees, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, the, the ruling council there within the precincts of uh, the temple. Peter and John are proclaiming the truth. We find that uh, the the Sadducees, because they're, verse 2, greatly annoyed. Now folks, this does not mean that they were mildly irritated. This means they were thoroughly ticked off about what was going on, who was doing it, and what was being 
said. And so they, they come upon them. They, they aggressively approach uh, them to stop what they considered to be this heresy, this nonsense. We're told that the captain of the temple, that's probably a little bit of a strange term, but the captain of the temple was a, a, uh, a Sadducee. Uh, he was a part of the, the high priestly caste. And he was delegated with the authority of keeping order there on the temple precincts. He had authority and he had power to police the temple precincts. And so I always remember that those in power, particularly those who are in power to... Uh, to, and their, their main goal is to maintain it and, and to continue to, uh, to, to corrupt everything, they make sure they maintain the status quo. They, may, they make sure they can, quote-unquote, keep the peace so their power and authority can remain within their control. And so this is kind of the, the local sheriff or the local police chief, and he comes acting on behalf of of uh, the Sadducees, uh, this aristocratic, high priestly uh, caste that was uh, certainly guilty of, of colluding uh, with uh, the Romans. Uh, it's not that they loved the Romans so much. They, they were more interested in maintaining their power. The Romans gave them a certain type of autonomy uh, to, uh, to utilize the temple ultimately what, for what would be their own gain, their own profit, their own corrupt money-making schemes. And so... They were unwilling for anything to upset that status quo. Of course, you're very mindful of the fact that they were the religious group there within Israel. And any time I read on them, I get a little bit different view and a different understanding. Historically, I've said they were the liberals, Pharisees, conservatives, and maybe in some sense... Uh, that, that kind of holds uh, true. But fundamentally, what typically gets noted in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, and the thing they're most noted for probably, besides their corruption and, and their viciousness, is the fact they denied the resurrection. Okay? Uh, they did, doctrinally, the, they did not accept uh, the hope of the resurrection, primarily because they did not find it in the five books of Moses, in the Torah, which is the only thing, the only part of what we call the Old Testament that they really accepted uh, as authoritative. And so they had a doctrinal opposition to that which was being proclaimed, uh, and they had a, a, uh, a specific objection to the claim, to the proclamation, that this one Jesus, the one who had been crucified, had been raised from the dead. And so again, a bit of a double-edged uh, sword, a double-edged objection uh, that they are going to appeal to, that's going to motivate them uh, to bring their hostility uh, to bear upon uh, these uh, the, the disciples. And so we see there beginning in verses uh, 3 and 4, the arrest of Peter and John, that they were, uh, they were, they were put uh, in custody. They were uh, they, they, uh, were stopped from doing uh, that which they were uh, doing, and they were placed uh, in custody. Uh, they were incarcerated for the evening. That Luke notes that makes me wonder. And I, I didn't see a commentator mention this at all. But many commentators point to the, the many irregular and illegal aspects of the trial of the Lord Jesus 
One of them being that the trial took place at night, that which was forbidden under the law, that it was actually a kangaroo court conducted uh, illegally. And I don't know if um, some of the people had raised that issue uh, with the Sadducees that, that here they would say, hey, we've, you know, we've been hearing it, people have been squawking about us uh, you know, convict, trying and convicting Jesus in the middle of the night. They didn't like that. So we're going to hold them and we're going to at least go through the motions, give some semblance of respectability to what we're about to do. And so they arrested them and put them in their prison uh, for uh, that evening uh, to await uh, the quote-unquote trial to, to, for, their, for their hearing there. And, and so this does remind us. You have uh, the, uh, the arresting officer. Uh, you have uh, uh, the group that's going to be in charge of kind of the arraignment process of bringing uh, the charges, and then they're, they're the ones that are going to adjudicate this particular issue. And the Jews had in place a very good judicial system. And this is a, kind of a practical point. No matter how well thought out and how well planned out any system is, particularly a governmental, political system, a judicial system, when it is inhabited by corrupt people, it will fail to work as it was designed. I'm reminded, many of you know my, my favorite author, other than God himself, okay? He, he's my favorite author, okay? But of secular authors, authors, I love John Grisham. You know, he's a southern redneck boy, and he writes the way a guy from Somerville can understand. I know those people, okay? I grew up with them, okay? And, and so, in uh, A Time to Kill, as they bring Samuel L. Jackson, the actor in the movie, to his trial, and he looks up in the jury box, and his remark is, as a black man looking at 12 white faces sitting in the jury box, and this is a jury of my peers? In that, no matter how well designed the judicial system is, and I think it is, I think it's well thought out, if it's corrupt, if the fix is in, it does not work. Of course, there's a great plot twist and all in the story. I won't give it all away. But do you see what I'm saying? Human corruption, human sinfulness, human ulterior motives, and, and again, practical application. We see it today that cases go to court with an already agreed upon verdict, okay, at, at every level, okay? And so when the culture is ignorant of ultimate truth, they become increasingly corrupt and the system ultimately collapses upon itself. It fails. So, again, just, just know we're at that, 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 at that time. There is a, an interesting twist, and I don't have, we're not going to take time to go and look at Deuteronomy 13. But in the law, God charges Israel with the responsibility, you need to check out miracle workers. And you need to determine if uh, the miracles are true, and you need to determine if the message of the miracle worker is true, lest they lead you astray into false worship, into false gods. And so the question is really this. Jesus was a miracle worker. Now the disciples are miracle workers. Are they leading you away from God toward strange gods, or are they leading and revealing the one 
true God. It is Jesus Christ who the Bible says that He is. So in one sense, they have a legitimate duty charged from the Old Testament law, but because they're so evil, wicked, and corrupt, they cannot come to a just and true verdict. Remember, what's truth? Truth reflects reality. Who was Jesus? He's exactly who He said He was. Okay? He, exactly who He is, but they could not come to that right verdict. It was too costly for them to judge rightly. Now, as I said a minute ago, the church is going to be afflicted by moral evil, evil satanically energized persecution, oppression here. And I think one of Luke's main points, and I, I think it, it, it carries through the entirety of the book, and I never, many of you will remember Bob Shipp uh, that was uh, at Centercrest when I first uh, came. And, what, and I can still see him standing in the pulpit on Wednesday night teaching Bible study. And his, his big emphasis in the Gospel of Acts was that, yes, indeed, the gospel, the, the messengers of the gospel can be put in chains. But the gospel always has been and always will be unchained. That is, the apostles are hindered here, but the gospel isn't. The gospel will never be hindered. The gospel will always be more powerful than men's chains. And it will go forth. And make no mistake about it. It will accomplish the purpose for which God designed it and sent it. Okay? And so, there in verse 4, in the midst of this business regarding the arrest, but, okay, this is terrible. Disciples are in jail. They're in trouble. This ain't going to end well. Okay? But, many of those that heard believed, and whether it means the number in the church came to 5,000 now, 3,000 plus more, those being saved daily, large numbers saved here, or whether it means 5,000 on that day. I don't know. I'm not sure. Commentators kind of divide. I don't care. You know, in, in, in a sense, it doesn't matter. But bukus of people were being saved. Okay? Bukus. Lots. Because what? The gospel is powerful and mighty to save. And so, 5,000 were saved. Gospel unleashed. Preachers chained up. That's always the reality. No matter what they do to us, the church will shine brightly and the gospel will accomplish its purpose. So, we see the arrest and we see this uh, statement regarding the triumphing of the gospel in that moment. Let's move forward, verse 5 through 8. The arraignment before uh, the Sanhedrin comes the next day. We get the laundry list of evil men, kind of a, uh, you know, an honor roll uh, for those who are corrupt and vile and vicious with some kind of veneer of religiosity. Okay? And we recognize some of those names. They were involved uh, in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're reading anything, that should be a cue. That's, that's a red flag. We see Annas and Caiaphas. Oh, wait a minute. I've seen what they do before. This, this, this is bad. This is bad, okay? So, so just good, good literature uh, there. 
So they bring them in uh, to the midst of it. My understanding is the, the Sanhedrin, the, the 71, the council would kind of make a semicircle and they would put the accused uh, there in front of them in, in, the, in the middle uh, of them. And, and they, they inquire uh, of them there in, in verse 7. They have a, the, the question for them is, by what power or by what name did you do this? Who do you think you are? Who gave you the right? Who died and made you king? You know, whatever. But how did you do this? Power. Why do you think you have the right to do this? Authority. Okay? Who gave you the power? Who gave you authority? By what right did, was this accomplished? Well, Mr. Sanhedrin, thank you for teeing it up for me. I'm sure Peter's going, well, yes. Thank you, sir, for the question. Thank you for the opportunity. I am prepared to give a defense that, that my Savior Jesus Christ, He had told me that this kind of thing was going to happen, and He told me that He would be with me, and yes, I'm the one that collapsed the night of His betrayal and arrest, but now, because of what He has done in me and for me, I'm now ready to stand, and I will tell you with great clarity the why and the how. We're told that uh, he's going to answer that question there. Again, verses uh, 5 through 8. We're told that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is going to take this time now to announce to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look a little further there. And you see, as he stands before them, He's going to answer their question directly. And Luke tells us in verse 8 that he is filled with the Spirit. Luke is very concerned with explaining and defining and illustrating how the Holy Spirit's going to work in this new covenant age. We make distinctions between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which comes at the new birth, and, and then the, the ongoing filling that, that God supernaturally empowers. He may do it through illuminating our mind. He may do it through uh, conviction. He may do it through give, granting to us courage. But he works especially uh, for uh, the believer. It's a bit like in, in the old days back when we had what they called muscle cars, real cars, okay? If you got ready to pass somebody now, if you don't know what passing somebody means... Back before there were interstates, there were two-lane roads. You had both directions of traffic separated by a yellow line. And if you got somebody that was behind somebody that was going too slow, which for me would be anybody, uh, you went into the oncoming traffic and you passed. And here was the fun part. When you stomped on the accelerator, you smile and look at your buddies. So, so you hear that passing gear kick in. Gee, let me tell you something. There was a stream of gas going through that carburetor about as big as both of my fingers, you know. Whoop, boom! I mean, the car just all of a sudden, man, it, it, it you know, it, it, just, it just rares up and says, turn me loose! And away you go. Fun, fun, fun. Dear Daddy takes the T-Bird away. Or Chevy Malibu, as it was in my case. But truly, 
there's kind of a normative aspect of the work of the Spirit, but there's still often unique works. Now, I've, I've argued that filling is normative, but, I, but, it, but there are just going to be moments that God equips His people and says, now's the moment. Stand and deliver. And I am with you. I'm with you always, even to, until the end of the age. And so, he does that, and in, in, in really, again, in fulfillment of what Jesus had said in, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus had told them, they're going to bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and authorities, don't be anxious. Don't worry about defending uh, your, yourselves, because the Holy Spirit's going to teach you in that moment. You're going to be filled with the Spirit in that moment. Uh, John 15, verse 26, The Helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things to bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, folks, that is not an apologetic. That is not an excuse. Well, I don't need to study. God will just tell me what to say when time comes. The Bible also says, Study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay? It says both. Okay? And I would suggest to you there will be little in the way of influence and power and experience of the Holy Spirit apart from your commitment to be a student of the Word of God. Just as a practical matter. Okay. So, he proclaims, he announces this gospel of Jesus Christ. It's simple. It's clear. It's accurate. You've heard me say many times, that's what we strive for when we preach a message. Okay? It's not rocket science. It's fairly straightforward. And there's also an urgency to this, this truth. There's a necessity. We must say these things. And so, uh, in verse 10, he says, wake up and listen to this. Let it be known to all of you, even the entirety of the nation, Jesus Christ, and you crucified Him. That's bold. They know the power this group has. They know the evil of their hearts. You crucified Him. You're guilty. Same thing that, that He did at Pentecost. Yeah. Handed over according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God, but with you wicked men who colluded together, you crucified Him, and you are guilty. So here He goes again with this business of you're guilty. And you acted in that manner. You crucified Him. He was dead. And what? Look there at verse 10. It's not the end of the story. God raised him from the dead. And because of him, because of the resurrected one, this man is standing before you and he's healed. Okay? So the indictment and, and the ongoing realities of the truth that's being expressed because of the person in work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to further explain in verse 11, again appealing to Scripture, Psalm 118 again, you were God's ordained builders of His people and you rejected that one who is the cornerstone. And now God has made him, He is now building on that cornerstone. You are guilty of transgressing the very Word of God by rejecting the cornerstone not only of truth, but the cornerstone of the church. And so, he's not cutting them any slack. Too many times, the church tries to 
kind of round off the edges a little bit. Uh, you know, just kind of say something kind of nice. And the gospel many times is quite edgy. Okay, the truth is edgy. Now he goes on and look at verse 12. And it's one of the number of times that we see this concept expressed and expressed clearly. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and life, no man comes to the Father except through me. By way of kind of a double negative here, there is salvation in no one else, and there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, there are a lot of things that the world is going to be upset with the church in regards to. I'll kind of give you a laundry list here in just a moment. But one of them is the kind of the, the, the designation of Jesus as the exclusive, the unique, the only Savior. Because of what's sometimes called the operification, referring to Oprah Winfrey, Oprah Winfrey. Have you, have you ever seen it? What is your truth? What is your truth? Folks, I don't give a flip about your truth. Don't care. Couldn't care less. What I want to know is God's truth. As again, Bob, Bob Ship, you say, not on your side, not on his side, her side, whatever. I'm on God's side. And so be mad, be offended. Okay. There's only one name given among men. And not only, well, it'd be nice if you'd be saved. If you would avoid the judgment of hell, you must be saved. And you must be saved by this exclusive and narrow way through the person and the work of this one man, Jesus Christ, whom you rejected, who you colluded with the Romans to place on a cross, who God has raised from the dead to put an exclamation point to announce by way of megaphone that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all who do not bow the knee willingly, do not confess Him as Lord, in this time will be condemned to hell forever. Now to be sure, I believe this. When it says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, I believe even before you are sentenced to hell, you will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's my conviction. I could be wrong about that, but usually I'm right. So, so no other Savior, singular. And again, we see this over and over and over. And again, you can talk about, well, you might need a little help, a little self-improvement. You need to cultivate a little better self-esteem. No, you need to repent because you're corrupt to the core. And you could do nothing to gain, to earn your own salvation. Again, clear, simple, direct. And while it may make you a little uncomfortable, it's the truth. Okay? All right. The assessment of the council. They've heard this message. They've, they've seen this great miracle. Look at verse 13. They're, they're shocked. I mean... Maybe part of it is, did they not see what we did to Jesus? Should they not be shaking in their boots? I know that's an, an anachronism, but uh, okay. 
But in their sandals, shouldn't they be shaking in their sandals? I mean, we, we can do as we please with this guy. And, and so they're bold, and then they go, and they, they haven't even graduated from our best schools. They, they, they don't have our stamp of approval upon them. And so, how is it that they speak? And I don't think it's just their boldness. I think somewhere within them, they knew. They're telling us the truth. But if it is true, we cannot afford to give up what the gospel demands we give up. And so, they're in a crisis here. And, 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 and the reality is staring them in the face. They must recognize uh, this great truth that, that, that the, they, they're standing in the face of irrefutable evidence. They, they, have a, they have a great dilemma in that they can't deny the guy's been healed. Now, he, and let me tell you, let me, this kind of reminds me of, of a problem that we now have in our culture. At least they were aware this guy was lame, now he's walking. See, that statement is true because it conforms to reality. Remember me saying that a minute ago? That's what truth is. It conforms to, to reality. Okay? Now we're living in a world in which people disconnect. They say something is true without its intrinsic and essential connection to reality. That, that people can look at the evidence and simply deny the truth, which makes it difficult to get them to comprehend that the gospel is rooted in truth claims. It's rooted in a statement about reality that there really was a man named Jesus who was God incarnate, who lived in our world, who was perfect in every way. He never transgressed the law. He was persecuted and ultimately crucified by the Romans and God has raised him from the dead and he is uniquely and exclusively the only Savior by which men must be saved. Okay? The evidence is overwhelming. It this reminds me, and, and all of you remember the story of Lazarus. This guy walks out of the grave, and the, the Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin's going, man, if the Romans get wind of this, they're going to take our place and take our nation. You, you follow what they're saying? We're going to lose our spot in this perverse pecking order. So we can't let this get out. But it reminds me, there was a, a group, Jake and some of his buddies used to uh, listen to this. Some of you, it's called the Reform Pub, okay? And I got kind of put out with them because they wanted to rattle on about something that I wasn't interested in for 30 minutes. I'm like, shut up and tell me what I need to hear. Just shut up. Quit rambling. But they made the comment one time, and I thought this is really good, in relationship to apologetics, to to proving in, in some type of a rational way, uh, historically or scientifically, the truth of the Bible. They said, until a man is, man's heart is reshaped, until, he, until that heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, they will find a way to discount the message and dismiss the messenger. That is always now. I'm I'm not against apologetics, and I and I think it's interesting, and, and I think there's some place for it. But ultimately, I be, I believe the evidence is absolutely overwhelming for the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel. I don't see how anybody can can refute that. But until a man's eyes are opened, they can't see it. 
you know, I have to pick my moments to be cynical and sarcastic and bombastic and things like that. But I appreciate there's a comedian named Jeff Allen. I've seen this pop up on social media several times. And he, he evidently claimed to be an atheist at one time. And he said he was playing in a golf tournament with a man who turned out to be a Christian. Imagine that in God's providence, an atheist winding up in a golf cart. And golfers tend to be too lazy to walk, so they're going to get back in the golf cart, and then you've got to listen to the guy beside you sitting right here. And the guy begins to speak of him about, speak to him about Jesus. And Jeff Allen interrupts him very quickly and says, no, no, I'm, not, I'm an atheist. And the guy looked at him and said, you're not an atheist, you're a moron. Facts are facts. And so, I, I, I've, in talking to people that go down that line, I have commended them for their faith. Jeff Dalton was with me one time, just back here somewhere. I said, well, I commend you for your faith. Guys, he was atheist. I said, I commend you for your faith. You're believing something there ain't no evidence for. I believe in things that have a lot of evidence. Told a guy one time, he was kind of shutting me out. I said, well, let me tell you something. Using kind of the buzzwords of the day, I'm narrow, intolerant, exclusionary. <laughs> The way is narrow. We cannot tolerate lies. The salvation is exclusive. It's only given to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. I was just trying to shock him a little bit. Just, hey, wake up. Smell the coffee. But again, nobody can get it apart from this work of God the Holy Spirit. Without a new heart, they remain fixed in their rebellion even in the face of overwhelming evidence so they have to figure out what we're going to do we can't you know people like this they like those guys they're they're some of them are believing it we we can't say well this this guy wasn't wasn't healed we can't say okay they're claiming this stuff about jesus and there's kind of a correlation between the resurrection of jesus and the healing of a of a lame man and so they Bring them back in. After dismissing them and having this discussion, they bring the disciples back in and they tell them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now there's a lot of times we can cooperate with civil or other types of religious authority. These were kind of civil slash religious. They had charge of the temple. But this is one command we can never obey. God's people can never shut up about Jesus. They can never agree that we can't, cannot talk about it. And, and I've told you this before, and there are already laws on the books in Canada, but the, there's a movement in place that if the gospel is rightly preached with its corresponding indictment for sin, and you think of the characteristic sins of our age, that indictment, even the idea that you need to be saved, if you're an unbeliever, be mad about it. Just go ahead and be mad about it. The preacher here told you, you need to be saved. That means you're guilty, okay? Nobody wants to hear that. But there's going to come a day where our proclamation of the gospel is going to be threatened. Could even be illegal. Those that proclaim the gospel may be brought before authorities, be indicted for hate speech or something along that line. And so, Peter gives them our answer. This must be our answer. We cannot be silent about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's going to come back to this in chapter 5. Simply, we must obey God 
rather than men. I was asked a question this week by a member of another church. Kind of came out of the blue. Would you shut your church down again? And I said, well, I'm not going to draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to make statements. Maybe, perhaps, there might be something. I don't, I, and he very quickly said, well, our preacher said, we'll never shut down again. Pastor of a big church, you know, well-known. I said, well, that, that, that's good. I said, let me put it this way. Knowing what I know now, I would not have shut the church down. Knowing the shenanigans that the powers that be are engaged in, and my suspicion, they will continue to engage in them. So there is every chance that were our government to say, you cannot assemble yourselves together. We're going to pass by law that you are in violation of the law if you assemble yourselves as God commands. I will have to say, we will obey God rather than men. And so... We need to be, I'm just saying, we need to be thinking about that day. So they're threatening them. And this may also be kind of something they may have gotten a little, little pushback on. And so maybe it's a part of their, okay, we're going to warn these guys once. Because they're, they're really not punished. They're just told, you can't do this anymore. And, of course, they've already told them what their answer is to that is they, they, they know they can't punish them, they can't deny the evidence, and they're afraid of the people because they got to keep both the Romans happy and the Jews happy to keep their position. So they choose this, okay, y'all go on and be quiet. And so Peter simply says, you've made your decision and we've already told you what our decision is. And it always must be the decision of church we will obey God rather than men and so as we kind of close the this episode this aspect again Peter or Luke reminds us this this was an adult 40 years old very obvious a miracle had been done and because the miracle provided the opportunity the gospel has been proclaimed and persecution is coming just as kind of some thoughts to to reflect upon I believe it's characteristic of life in a fallen world. For God's people, God's messengers, God's message to be opposed. That, that the world is always going to hate that. And there, there, there are going to be things, and there already are things, that we are going to have to stand firm on. I mentioned many times abortion. And I'll tell you this. The Vice President of the United States recently went to, uh, I believe it's the National Baptist Conference, I believe it was in Houston, and stood and distorted and perverted 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul wrote, Be on your God, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong, do, and do everything in love. And she stood there and defended abortion on the basis of distorting and perverting God's Word. Okay? Now, why can I say abortion is wrong? Well, it's just my opinion. I like babies. It's just, you know, it's just a bad thing. Why? Why do I say it's wrong? Why should I stand in the public square and say it ought to be illegal? Why should I say murder is it should be illegal? Why? Because that's what God's Word says. I'm entitled to no other opinion. Okay? There's going to be other questions. I mean, I, I, I don't... 
Guess what? I ran a little long. I can't go into all the... We'll come back to it. But so many things that are pertinent issues. We're going to be pushed on. The clouds have gathered. And we need to be prepared. You have been warned. And I, I call you to, to faith and courage. What did Jesus say? I will build my church. I'll use you, but even if they kill you, I'll still use you in building my church. Okay? Even if they take your stuff, I'm still going to use you to build my church. Even if they ridicule you, I'm still going to use you to build my church. But ultimately know this, I will build my church in the gates of hell. will not prevail against it. That is certain. That is sure. Okay? So, the victory is secure. The gospel is true. And we've been commanded to tell people of that and those great realities. Pray with me. Father, how we thank you for your truth. We thank you that it is true. It is not our truth in some subjective sense. It is objectively, historically true. And because it's true, the mandate is to faithfully proclaim that truth. It is, again, the message that you have given to reveal your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. I pray, God, that we would be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.